This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The Mayor's Town Hall, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is here in studio. Good morning. Thanks for coming in today. Uh, it's good to be here, actually. It's uh, been wet and woolly out there, like uh, like it has been for everyone else. And uh, I didn't have any trouble getting in. So that's the that's the good news. Roads are pretty clear and, uh, you know, moving. And uh, hopefully we uh, we don't have the flooding that, uh, that might ensue uh, at this point in time. Well, I guess that's something you have to keep an eye on. I know that there are flood warnings that go into effect. And uh, we've had some rather bad experiences with those, not just in the uh, the east end, of course, near Red Hill, but it's been in many other areas. We are the city of waterfalls, and that's uh, magnified on a day like this. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, the water flows. It's only got one way to go, and that's into the system. And then, uh, you know, if it starts to back up, uh, you know, we don't want to overswamp the, uh, the the sewage treatment plant. That's uh, that's almost happened a couple of times. So they're uh, doing bypasses right now to make sure that the uh, the flow happens and that doesn't occur. And um, and we have had some flooding. So I I had some updates over the weekend. Uh, some flooding. Actually, lake flooding, waves coming over the breakwaters in uh, in Stony Creek, and have actually they've had to evacuate some homes down there. And uh, I'm sure there's some isolated flooding in other places as well. So hopefully we uh, we can get through this, and the rain will ease up, and uh, we can start drying things up. I was watching the weather yesterday afternoon while we were what, and, and Mark Robertson, a good friend of the weather, and he's one of the storm chasers. He was down actually at Spencer Smith Park in Burlington. Yeah. It looked like Hurricane Hazel. I mean, oh, the way the, the breakwater was just incredible. Well, and it was uh, a wind coming from the north, so right across the lake pushes all the water towards this end of the lake, and then the uh, the waves uh, the waves hit, and uh, you know there. There aren't too too many things that can withstand the power of water, and uh, so, so unfortunately, some of the homes uh, right right in in and around Church Street uh, in Stony Creek uh, just couldn't uh, couldn't withstand it. The, the the breakwater didn't hold up, and uh, water came over the top and then had flooded them out. So uh, we've had some power outages there. We've had some isolated power outages, not as many as one would have expected, quite frankly. Uh, Electra's done a good job of getting at them, but I think about 7,000 homes had power, intermittently power failures, but by and large, uh, not as bad as one would have expected. In our area of Hamilton, uh, up in Ancaster, of course, we're serviced by Hydro One. Yep. So it's a little different for us. We count the number of days the power's on, <laughs> but uh, that's just a, that's something that we've learned to live with, I guess. Uh, 905-645-3221, start 9900. Uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is here uh, to take your questions and your calls. Let me get right to your phone calls. I'm sure you've got a lot of things you want to talk about with uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Terry, you're first up on this. Welcome to the program, Terry. Hi, how are you doing this morning? Great, great. great Go ahead great, for the mayor. I just got a question for the mayor. I just want to know, so I know the last two years uh, the city services up here in Central Mountain have been really pissed poor service. Even to this day, there hasn't been a truck, a snowplow down Brucedale. Mm-hmm. Avenue, and they spent millions of dollars on GPS services to track these trucks. Right, and uh, I t- I t- it's beyond me. I've never seen such crappy snow removal services like I have. Mostly this year, it's at its all-time lowest. Hmm. Well, uh, Terry, that's not uh, that's not the reporting I get. Generally speaking, uh, you know, if if they're not uh, servicing your area the way they should, we certainly uh, want to hear about that. Uh, I've, I know that the, uh, the vehicle has been out and they do it on a priority basis, as you, uh, you probably know. So, uh, you know, one and two roads are basically the accesses and the major arterial roads get, uh, get cleared off first. Uh, when they're functioning and operating properly, then they start working on the, uh, the side roads. In, in these kinds of conditions, you know, it's almost, uh, it's almost a tough call whether you actually run a plow down the street or not, because uh, it could actually clog things up more than, uh, than leaving it be and letting it just melt. And so, uh, you know, someone's obviously made a call on some of the side streets to, uh, to kind of leave it be. And I expect by, by end of day and possibly tomorrow, a lot of that, uh, a lot of that slushy stuff will be gone. So, um, you know what, uh, we can second guess the service. I think by and large, it's been, uh, it's been good. Uh, all of the accesses were open uh, most of the time yesterday, other than when it was really, really freezing rain. Uh, and uh, most of the, the, the transit services have been operating. So I think we're, uh, we're functioning as best we can in these uh, kind of challenging storm conditions. Terry, you mentioned Brewsdale. Which part of Brewsdale? Uh, right from uh, Upper Ottawa, right yep. to Upper Sherman. Okay. Terry, I'll take note of that, yeah. and uh, I'll certainly ask I've about... I've already called. Sorry? I've already called. This Have morning. you? Okay. I called yesterday. Yes. No response. And, uh, like, uh, I know what the cost of level is, the service, and I understand you're, you're trying to wait it out, but when you when there's, there's an ice uh, storm like uh, what just happened now, uh-huh. yep. you still have to, you have to go fight it. You can't lay back and say, well, it's going to melt down. I almost hit a car head-on this morning on Brucedale because of the rutting of the snow. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, 
turning lanes were totally blocked. Like, I'm talking 10 to 11 inches of snow all through the turning lanes. We have probably $600,000 worth of supervision in the mountain. And where are they? Where, where, where is this computer system? Why aren't they tracking stuff? Like, we spent a lot of money. Where's Bob Paul? Why isn't he out checking these roads? Why aren't these supervisors out checking these roads to see the level of service that we're getting up here? Fair comments, Terry. I'll, uh, I'll ask about that uh, when I get back to the office, and uh, we'll see what uh, what's going on in Brucedale and in other areas. And I'm sure we're going to get a pretty fulsome report. We always do on on the uh, the service that was provided. And you know, there by and large, no, I think there the, was uh, no the service provided. Okay, fair enough. There, there was service throughout the city, Terry. Uh, you know, yeah, the, ma- the main roads, main roads and accesses were uh, pretty clear. I was around out and, out and around yesterday, and I, I didn't have any trouble getting around. You could have been on the mountain. I was well, on I was on the mountain in fact and I anyway. took, took the link yeah. I took the link on, up onto the mountain and yeah, I was around the mountain The link was in good shape cuz I, I I went out to Ancaster yesterday And I was on I was on Upper Gage and I was on Upper Sherman and I was on Upper Wellington we all of them were Upper Sherman all of them were functioning It was the, it was totally covered and there's a water ponding situation at mm-hmm. Sherman and Mohawk all day mm-hmm. all day that ran all the way out to the to the right. traffic island. All right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna have the mayor look at this, Terry, and uh, and I guess uh, he'll try to get back to you and get a report from staff. I appreciate you starting it off, yeah, Terry. I, if I you got want... a lot of folks that want to get on the line here, so I'm gonna let you go at this point. Go ahead. But if he if he wants to call into the office, Terry, nine zero five five four six forty two hundred, give me your contact information and I'll follow up with you. Thanks again. 905-645-3221, star 9900. Uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is here. The Mayor's Town Hall, the Bill Kelly Show, 900 CHML. Jim, you're next on the program. Hi. Hi. Uh, My question is, I'd like to know what the Mayor's position is on the absolute stupidity of these bicycle lanes that are, in essence, are not used at all from November to April, and they totally and completely tie up traffic. And then further, I believe it on on, on Herkimer, it's uh, completely insane, where you've got people parking in the center of of the actual uh, road. So all the bicycle lanes do, as far as I can see, is tie up traffic, and nobody uses the thing. So what is his position on that? Okay, I'll, Jim, I'll let you go, and I'll let the mayor answer that on the air. Thanks for the thank call. You, uh, thank you, Jim. Now, generally, I support uh, you know putting, uh, putting uh, new and improved bike lanes in. I think it's a positive step for our city. It encourages people to use alternative uh, means of transportation. They are used. Now, I, you know, I, I would say that's, you know, they're, they're not overwhelmed by use, but they are used. Uh, and it's also important for us to, uh, to encourage that kind of use. And as you, as you well know, we have uh, you know, a fairly robust Sobe bike uh, system down in the lower city. Very, very well used. Hundreds and thousands of trips people uh, taking on, on them on a regular basis. Obviously, in inclement weather, maybe not as much as, uh, as, as normal dry, dry circumstances. Uh, the, uh, the, protection, uh, the protected bike lane on uh, Herkimer and, uh, and on Charlton, uh, I think was a progressive step that, uh, that actually came out of New York City, where they're doing that actually quite regularly, to, uh, to actually provide the parking area as a means of protecting the bike line. And I think it's, uh, I think it's functioning. Uh, I know it uh, takes some getting used to, and I think it's there's certainly a change, but uh, it, it doesn't seem to me that, uh, and I, I don't, haven't had any, any reports otherwise, that, uh, that it's impeding any kind of traffic flow. So things seem to be moving as they, as they should, and uh, we're al- allowing for some opportunity for bikes to, uh, to also take, take advantage of those protected bike lanes uh, as they sit. Thanks for the call. And this is going to be an ongoing debate, and I'm sure that as uh, we head towards the municipal election, Mr. Mayor, people are going to be talking about that uh, at the doors. But uh, I, I, And I've had a number of programs about this, and I've talked especially about Herkimer and, and Charlton with mm-hmm. what's gone on there. Uh, and it's different. And I know the first time I drove up on uh, Herkimer, I thought, what have they done? But I'm used to it. And yet, you know what? It might slow you down a little bit, but so what? That's not a bad thing. Yeah, and I, you know, I recall when we made the change to uh, from one way to two way on John and James. Uh, you know, there was a lot of controversy at the time. People were upset that uh, you know this is going to c- completely alter the uh, the traffic patterns. And uh, after a couple of years, uh, people gotten used to it, and everything's uh, everything's flowing as it was before. You know, uh, I, I don't think we're not looking to delay traffic. We're looking to actually provide opportunities to have complete streets and and a number of opportunities to not only provide decent sidewalks 
but bike lanes and and movements of buses and vehicles. All of that, including to, to include all kinds of uh, and different forms of transportation. And so I, I, I think we need to look to the future. I think people are going to be using bikes more and more. Uh, the Sobe bike experience is really quite staggering. Uh, you know, in the lower city, that's not up on the mountain yet, but on the lower city, uh, the use of the uh, the bike uh, the bikes has been uh, outstanding, and uh, obviously people are using those uh, bike lanes uh, in in pro- inappropriate weather quite regularly, and uh, it's very helpful to have them separated out from the uh, the regular car traffic. I think it makes it a lot safer for everybody. Well, you may have also noticed, and we've talked to a number of the councillors about this, that uh, the uh, fallback speed limit in the city is very quickly becoming 40 kilometers an hour. Mm-hmm. We're trying to slow things down. There are far too many people who get involved in collisions, there are far too many uh, accident. Well, they're not accidents. They're pedestrians getting hit, cyclists that are getting hit right now. This, this is all about public safety. Uh, and and I, I always get a little miffed when I hear somebody say, well, I never see anybody in the bike lanes. Well, you know what? I drove down Charlton on Saturday. I didn't see anybody on the sidewalk. I think we should take that sidewalk out of there. <laughs> of course, it, you know, the, it depends on the weather. But if the, the bike lane isn't there, then they're not going to use their bikes. That's all there is to it. And, and you want those people that are going to be cyclists to have a safe environment. Yeah, exactly. And you know what? Hopefully, you know, people will have kids and you want those kids. So I did a little ride along with uh, a family a little while ago that uh, was taking their son to a school, St. Joseph's, so in the lower city. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the impediments that people put into, in through the bike lanes, but people are not paying attention to them or not. Uh, not you, you just um, about got hit. Almost got hit. And uh, I think that's unfortunate. I don't think it was a political enemy either. No, I think no, it, was, it wasn't, wasn't, a, what was, wasn't a purposeful thing, but uh, it was, uh, it was a, a good demonstration of, you know, how we accommodate uh, all forms of transportation uh, in our city. I can tell you, you know, in, in many other cities in the world, uh, not only do they promote uh, cycling, they actually, in many instances, cut streets off uh, entirely for uh, for complete pedestrian and cycling traffic on a, on a Saturday and a Sunday. I mean, we were in Bogota recently, and the, the main route into the city is completely cut off on the weekend to allow for pedestrian and people movement, uh, you know, through the whole area. Uh, we, we, we need to start thinking about how we make our streets safer and and more more friendly for both pedestrian cyclists and m- ensure that motorists can continue to operate uh, effectively. The one that just got me in, I know we could probably give 100 examples of this, and I don't want to get into it, but a couple mm. of years ago, we, got, we were in New York, we stayed in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Uh, woke up Saturday morning, we were right down on 7th Avenue and Broadway uh, at 48th Street, and the street was closed. Now, this is this is one of the busiest streets in New York and in North America. Saturday, they block it off for yep. about 10 blocks and just make it a big public mall. Yeah, and only it's a, only on Saturdays. It's a, it's it's all about making them people places, and that's uh, you know what that's what cities are for. Cities are not necessarily just about the car and the automobile or the bus. It's about uh, you know allowing for people to actually engage in their community and their street and the street life, in the shops that are there. Uh, you know, the interacting with their neighbors. Um, you know, we we need to encourage that, and I think in in many of the major cities, New York is a prime example. They've completely turned around their traffic patterns there, and actually uh, put people first. And I think that's uh, that's a direction I think that's worth going in. And by the way, just for the record, I am not anti car. I drive my car everywhere. I don't have I'm, a bike. I'm I'm with you. I have a bike, uh, uh, but I also drive the car and uh, need to. And I think many people do. Uh, but you know, I could I could say to some people, uh, you know, why don't you give it a try on a, on a bike once in a while, or come downtown and, and take on the Sobe bike? I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. I, I know there's always going to be a reaction, and and you know, anytime uh, we get a politician at any level on here, municipal, federal, or provincial, people resist change because it's change. It's different for them. Uh, they're used to driving down Bay Street with four lanes of traffic and just zooming down there, and mm-hmm. uh, and that's all well and good. But you know th- th- that was then. This is now, and I think we have to accept the fact that that we have to to look at things in in a more holistic way and and accommodate pedestrians and and accommodate cyclists and and make this a city that everybody can be safe in and, and feel free in. Uh, there's, there's still going to be times. I mean, there's always going to be people, Mr. Mayor, on either side of this that are going to say, "Get rid of the cars altogether." Well, that's fine, and they're going to say, "No, get rid of the cyclists altogether." Yeah. The, the answer's somewhere in the middle, and I think that's what we're trying to do, isn't it? It's, uh, it's trying to create that balance. And uh, you know what? Uh, people want to cycle, and uh, we need to make sure that that's done safely. Uh, people want to be pedestrians. We need to make sure that there are decent sidewalks for people to navigate. Uh, people want to, uh, you know, many instances they want to get rid of their car and, um, you know, work, look, look at only public transportation. And there are many people that are making that choice as well. And that's why we're moving on the, the LRT front and enhancing the HSR and improving the service and volume. All of those things uh, need to happen if 
we want to avoid some major, major congestion issues like they've uh, experienced in Toronto. So Toronto didn't invest in any of those systems for about 40 years. And today they find themselves in, uh, in, in essentially in gridlock. And now they have to expend, you know, gazillions of dollars to try and rectify some of the changes they should have done 30 or 40 years ago. We can, uh, we can keep a pace with this. Uh, we're not, we're not putting bike lanes everywhere, but we're, we're introducing them where appropriate. And we're also making sure that the traffic can flow and that the traffic is actually operating safely. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. The Mayor's Town Hall, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is with us here in studio to take your calls, uh, uh, respond to your emails and your tweets. Very quickly, before we get back to the phones, uh, from Phil on email. Uh, Mr. Mayor, has your view changed on LRT since Rob Ford announced that the billion dollars of funding can be used for anything the city desires? Uh, no, it hasn't. And I, you know, I think it's unfortunate that, uh, we've had that kind of a comment kind of uh, laid out there. Uh, you know, there isn't a billion dollars lying around here. These, uh, these major projects that the province is doing wherever they are and any, any government would do the same are finance projects. So we're going through a design, build, finance, operate and maintain, uh, RFP process, which means that the uh, proponents that are going to be building this thing also have to finance this thing. So this is not a billion dollars that's lying around. I think he's being a little cute with the uh, the statement. And uh, the reality is that um, it, it, he's not going to be handing a billion dollars to the city of Hamilton to do with whatever it will. Um, that's a, that's a, a, a pipe dream. And I know that uh, every other municipality in the province of Ontario will have their hand out faster than you can blink if that were to happen. Uh, and certainly uh, he won't be able to sustain that. So uh, I'm, uh, I, I don't, I don't, I hope people don't fall for that delusion. At the same time, I, I see great value in moving forward on LRT, and uh, you know, as they as the province would own it, they were also they would also be able to depreciate it over time, and that's a that's a positive financial step when you're doing a financed project. And so um, I'm uh, I'm uh, gung ho on LRT. I know that uh, it's going to have great l- lingering long term value for the city. Even Mr. Ford said that, and he believes that. And I would hope that uh, that we continue on and make sure that this project gets delivered. However, there are some council colleagues, though, that j- seem to have taken the, the bite here mm-hmm. and said, yeah, I'm going to have to rethink my position. I mean, uh, even that vote that was taken, Mr. Mayor, f- some months ago that said, let's move forward on this. And we heard some, some rather eloquent speeches from some people that had uh, previously been opposed to this, like Councillor Collins and, and Councillor Vanderbeek and Councillor Conley and things that, uh, people like that. Uh, are now starting to wonder, well, maybe I need to rethink this. Okay, if we're going to get the billion dollars anyway, uh, are you concerned about, about the future? Because if the new council gets elected in October, I guess they take office in, what, December? Mm-hmm. That, all that t- requires there was an up-and-down vote. You don't need a two-thirds majority. It, 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 and and if there's enough people that are opposed to this who think they're going to get the billion dollars, this thing could go sideways pretty quickly. It could, and I think that would be uh, terribly unfortunate. But uh, right now, that's all theory. So, uh, you know, until such time as we determine or what, uh, d- until the province determines who, uh, who wins this upcoming election, and I don't, I don't know that it's a slam dunk at this point. I think there's a, lot, a long way to go. The campaign hasn't even started. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to deal, deal in theory. I want to deal in uh, the reality, and when the reality hits, we'll deal with it when it comes. But uh, I, I would encourage everyone to stay the course. This is, uh, you know, this has enormous value for the city of Hamilton. That billion dollars that Mr. Ford talks about is an illusion. Uh, that is something that he would have to borrow, uh, and, and he can't borrow it against a particular project. He'd have to borrow it just to hand it over to the city of Hamilton, and every other municipality in the city will be having their hand out for the same thing. He's, he, he just cannot sustain this thing, and he has to win a majority to be able to del- deliver that. So we'll see. Uh, you know, I don't want to deal with the theory at this point. I want to deal with reality, and the reality won't be known until the uh, June provincial election is over. Back to your phone calls. The Bill Kelly Show, 900 CHML with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Kevin, thank you for holding on. Go ahead for the mayor. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Kevin. This is Kevin. How are you doing, Mr. Mayor? I'm good, Kevin. Uh, I'm just wondering about, you know, I know you can't talk about the specifics of, of some of the recent police shootings, but uh, I've done a bit of research, and I just wonder if, if the police need another tool in their arsenal. And uh, some of the research I've done is using rubber bullets, non-lethal form. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of it has been pretty successful. I, I would like a lot of people thought, you know, they used it like National Guard for crowd control and stuff. But in specific incidents, it's uh, been proven pretty successful. I just wondered if the police have even looked at this. Uh, not as yet. <clears throat> Certainly hasn't. 
<coughs> excuse me, Kevin, hasn't come up uh, as yet. Uh, I know that they're, uh, you know, they're always looking for alternatives, and uh, the taser is one that uh, that has been, uh, you know, used, and, and I think is the, probably the most effective at this point. Uh, there's also there's also training going on to uh, to to not uh, to to uh, to provide the uh, police officers more training on diffusing situations yes, and I that. and uh, you know in many instances uh, that's probably more effective than uh, than pulling out uh, any kind of weapon quite frankly I know but when when what does have to happen they've even found that you know like I'm just saying it's because of aim you know you, police have to worry about background there and like yep. I'm not anti police by any means but mm-hmm. I just think it's it's a fairly cheap thing it's just a switching of their ammunition like they carry one clip that's rubber bullets in the out note situation they usually one backs up the other one with like there's not many human beings that can withstand they're trained to shoot in the center if they if there's not many human beings that can withstand a couple of rubber bullets and they're not going to be killed by it right i think it's just a it's a cheap other tool that they should they should look at because i mean nobody wants to ever have that to happen but if in yep. certain situations i think it would be the ideal thing uh, any any opportunity in my view kevin i don't disagree with you to uh, to prevent a loss of life on either side so we don't want police officers to be harmed and they need to be able to protect themselves and we don't want uh, folks in the broader community to get hurt unnecessarily. So uh, anything that we can do to prevent that. So I'll raise that with the uh, the police chief next time I see him and uh, see what kind of answer he comes up with. I got one better for you. The chief's going to be on the show tomorrow. So Perfect. why don't you uh, hold your cu- question. Uh, chief Gert will be on the program tomorrow for his town hall. Uh, and you can ask him directly then. And uh, maybe he'll have a, an answer for you too. But, of course, uh, as a member of the police services board, these are things that would come before you as well. Ultimately, yep. Thanks so much for your call. 905-645-3221. Start 9900. Andrew, you're next on the Bill Kelly Show. Go ahead for Mayor Eisenberger. Good morning, Bill. How are you, sir? I'm good, Andrew. How are you? Good morning, Mayor Fred. Hi. Um, getting, um, let me go back real quick to transportation. Mm-hmm. And I know I don't have a lot of time, so I'll just park these ones out and let you answer them. Um, first of all, when it comes to the speedway, which is known as Everdeen, I would suggest that you install speed humps every so often so that it will have the effect of slowing people down. Mm-hmm. Next, um, all of our main intersections have the ability to have an advanced left-hand turn in all directions and not just one direction. And I'm thinking that if, if for example, the nearest main intersection to me is Lake Avenue and Queenston Road. Right. Using this as an example, the lights that are installed there, all it would be really is just a flip of a switch, and there would be an advanced left-hand turn mm-hmm. for everybody going like the east-west first and then north-south. Right. Instead of just having the eastbound traffic having an advanced or the southbound only having an advanced, if everybody had an advanced for those first 10 or 15 seconds, traffic would move throughout this region a lot easier. Good, uh, good thought, Andrew. I, mean, I don't, I can't disagree with you on that. So I'll, I'll be, be certainly be asking our, our kind of transit staff to uh, to consider and maybe report on w- whether or not that's a kind of a viable alter- alternative. They tend to use the uh, the left hand turn on where traffic is heaviest. So, you know, in instances like at Gray's Road and, and Queenston Road, um, you know, Gray's Road isn't particularly heavily used, and so it might actually impede traffic if they were to put in an advanced left there. Uh, but they do the advanced left on Queenston Road. I think that makes some sense. So happy to uh, to ask about that, and I'll certainly ask our traffic people to consider uh, whether or not that's going to be a benefit. Appreciate the call, Andrew. I, in a related topic, why is it the left-hand turn light never works when it's me that wants to make a left-hand turn? <laughs> you ever, you it, ever get to that situation they, where you it, say, oh, it's always an advanced yeah, turn, yeah, and yeah. there isn't when you want to make the turn? No, yeah, well, you know, the, they do turn it off when it's not peak hour. So, uh, no, they you know, turn like, it off when I want to use yeah, it. Well, they know, they, they op- obviously they're doing re- uh, retinal scans, and they know it's you. So Apparently so, yeah. yeah. Okay, just wanted to clear that up. Yeah. Thanks. 905-645-3221, start 9900. Your calls for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Chris, thanks for joining us on the program today. Go ahead. Yes. Hello, Mayor. Thanks for taking my call. I wanted to talk to you about trying to see what could be done to save a long-term institution of the Hamilton Avery that I understand the city's trying to close. Mm-hmm. Um, it has been in the city. A lot of people don't know that you know that the Hamilton Avery was in the city before the Ticats, before the Philharmonic, before Tim Hortons, and before Canadian Tires. It has been here over 90 years, and it seems a shame that all of a sudden we've decided to close something that's been around forever. Well, so I, I'm I'm not sure we're at the close, uh, you know, s- uh, position yet. Uh, we've uh, we've had, you know, the the aviary has gone through a number of iterations, and you know, as you recall, it was at uh, Dundurn Castle once upon a time, and 
And then uh, we had it uh, we had it relocated to Churchill Park, and uh, it's been there for uh, quite a long time. I think the Churchill Park building, as I understand it, needs uh, needs needs some work, and uh, there's some challenges there. Uh, and uh, you know the, uh, the the reality is that uh, you know it's it's no longer a public display, you know, as often as some people might like. So. I think all of those issues need to be factored into this uh, this situation, and you know I know there've been some very dedicated and committed volunteers d- doing I a great them. job. Yeah, and I appreciate the uh, the volunteerism. I think it's wonderful. Sorry, my earphones are crackling on me here, and um, you know what? I, I I think there's value if we can display them somewhere that's more uh, more visible and more interactive with the public at large. And that was the plan. The plan was that they were to go to Gage Park. Uh, Bernie Morelli was one of the counselors that got us ready. Right. Uh, if you look at the study for Gage Park, it says we're going to Gage Park. Master Plan 2010 says we're going to Gage Park. Um, I did write you an email on this. I hate to call you out on it, but uh-huh. I wrote you an email and did not get a response back from you. My apologies. Even though you sent me a, a letter, said you would respond, and you didn't. Okay. Um, I am one of the 25 year. I took over in 92 to help. Yep. Uh, some health issues asked me to step away, and the volunteers asked me to step back again when my health came back, mm-hmm. uh, which I have. Um, yeah, I just think that it's it's been something that's been here. Yes, it, it fell off the radar for a while. Uh, won't pass the buck. I think it, everybody's a little bit to blame. But all of a sudden, you know, we were told we were going to Gage Park, and then it comes out, oh, no, we're not going to Gage Park, and city staff is recommending closing something. Right. No, no for... No, hey, guys, let's sit down and talk about what can be done. I mean, the Avery does have a registered charity that can do fundraising. We're not opposed to doing fundraising to help mm-hmm. continue to keep this. It just seemed to come out of left field that, uh, you know, staff makes this decision and says, oh, this is what we're doing without any consultation to the uh, to the people that have been caring for these birds. Right. And obviously there's a huge groundswell. Everybody knows that uh, look on any of the multimedia and you can hear people saying, keep it, keep it, keep it. Yet we seem to be... You know, wanting so, to close something that's been in the city for over 90 years, and it does seem to be a shame to lose something again of this city that's been here part of the city's history. Right. So, so I'm I'm not a, I'm not opposed to the aviary, uh, Chris. I mean, I think it's been a it's been an interesting feature for uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, I th- I do think it ought to be a very public uh, public facility that uh, that is accessible yeah. to, uh, to to people to actually view and see. And uh, the original plan in terms of Gage Park was to introduce it in terms of the rebuild that's happening in terms of the tropical uh, gardens there. So I don't know that it's over yet. I'll certainly ask the question as to where it's at right now, and uh, we'll see where it goes from there. Thanks so much for the call. I've got a lot of other folks who want to get to in only a limited amount of time. Let's get Frank in here. Thanks for joining us on the Bill Kelly Show. Frank, go ahead for the mayor. Uh, good morning, and thank you for taking my call, and I'll make it quick. Uh, Mr. Mayor... Uh, good morning to you, and I would like to ask uh, if there's any further um, um, consideration of, of imposing photo radar on the uh, Red Hill. I mean, the speeds are posted, the signs are up, people are still darting around and, and, and pushing the accelerator farther, and I, even if it can go so far as an experimental process, there seems to be a lot of waverness as to whether it would be effective or not, but I think if we tried it to see whether or not it is effective, and I got a second question here with regard to the 403 as you go down from Ancaster into the lower city. Mm-hmm. Is there any uh, further projection as to how to um, eliminate the problems along there? There's a little, quite a bit of backup, whether it could be widened or what would be a, a remedy for that in your in your uh, opinion. I'm going to hang up and let okay. you answer that. Two good questions, Frank. Thank thanks for the call. Go ahead, Mr. Thanks, Mayor. Frank. So I'm going to work in reverse there. The 403, I mean, the uh, the province has indicated they, uh, they proposed in, in the future, and we don't have a definitive date for this uh, to expand the uh, that portion of the 403 coming down the uh, down the escarpment it's uh, it's necessary there's an you know ongoing backlog on the 403 coming from Brantford uh, you know each and every day coming into the city of Hamilton or going through onto Toronto so it's a it's a particular challenge and uh, we continue to work with the province of Ontario to encourage them to expand that so that we can uh, increase that flow and uh, end that log jam the uh, the other question was uh, remind me Photo radar. Photo radar. Photo radar. So the province of Ontario has uh, indicated to us when we've requested this 
that uh, if we were to put photo radar in, or to, they wouldn't allow for us to put photo radar in because it's a, a, fun, a road that they funded, and they, uh, they, they would not want to, uh, to approve that kind of photo radar on this location. So we've done uh, everything we can in terms of encouraging speed control there and uh, reducing or, or putting uh, you know, ex- extra signs up for the 90-kilometer speed limit, uh, encouraging people to slow down with different kinds of signage. Uh, I think photo radar can be very effective. Uh, but to date, we haven't been given the approval by the province to, to be able to introduce it in this location. Uh, let's get right back to your phone calls. Uh, 905-645-3221 at star 9900. John, thank you for holding on. Go ahead from Mayor Eisenberger. Hi, John. Oh, yes. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, when are we going to get the shovels in the ground to finally get started on the uh, down at the bayfront there on that project? And, and is there interest uh, from contractors that want to deal with Hamilton on that particular project. Are you, are you talking about uh, Pier, Pier 7 eight? and 8? Yes, I am. Yeah. Yes, sorry. Yes, okay, I'm going to so, let you go, and I'll let the mayor answer that on the air. Thanks, John. Thank you, uh, thank you, John. And yes, uh, the uh, the bids for that have uh, have actually come in. So there were uh, four four predominant bidders. Uh, some of them local, some of them not. Uh, it was wide open to kind of worldwide uh, opportunities. So we've had some local consortiums. I think it's been advertised in the newspaper. The four the four bidders that were uh, th- that were identified. In fact, there were even pictures uh, identified. <clears throat> so we have to get to the final uh, selection process, and I believe that's going to happen in the next couple of weeks. And then uh, the negotiations begin in terms of uh, you know what uh, what what uh, kind of detail we're going to kind of follow through on in terms of the uh, preferred bidder. And then uh, I expect in the next year or two that uh, that shovels can begin to be put in the ground. So. Uh, we're, uh, you know, 20 years we've been working on this, and we're uh, closer than ever before to actually having some real development happening on that site. You know that, or I'll tell you that uh, next year we're going to start with the public realm space. So the uh, the design that, uh, you know, some of you may have seen uh, that was selected early on along the water's edge will actually be implemented first as a, a kind of a public space amenity with all of all of the good things that come with that and then the uh, the development will happen thereafter so we're we're, we're close uh, but there are uh, four bidders four main bidders uh, you know, one of them is uh, predominantly local and there are some local elements in some of the other bidders as well but they're uh, from uh, from around North America in fact does the uh, Sarcoa situation have to be resolved before this can go forward well as far as we are concerned the Sarcoa situation is resolved it's a matter of, uh, of a lawsuit now and that, that that has a life of its own uh, we are in full ownership of that property, and uh, we can do with it at this point what we will. The previous owners uh, uh, were uh, evicted, and uh, and so we're free and clear now. We have to uh, then go to next steps in terms of determining what uh, happens with Sarko. And it was introduced as a potential part of the, uh, the the bid process for Pier 7 and 8. So we'll see what uh, what any of the proponents come up with. If it's something that's satisfactory to the city, we can move forward. If not, uh, we may have to have a separate process for that location. We're uh, right out of time. Thanks so much for everybody who called. My apologies to those that we didn't get to, but uh, we'll do this again in just a couple of weeks. Uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger in the Mayor's Town Hall. Thanks so much, Mr. Mayor. Thanks, Bill. Uh, looking forward to some drier days. That would be nice. Uh, starting to act like April. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, the uh, topic of conversation on all the uh, political shows on uh, all the major networks, of course, this past weekend in the States, uh, was not just about the weather. It was about the storm caused by James Comey. Uh, The former FBI director uh, was talking about his new book. Now, this has yet to be released to the public, but certainly a number of media outlets have received advanced copies of it. And uh, Comey uh, did an interview with George Stephanopoulos from ABC News uh, earlier, uh, and, uh, well, that one has been dissected upside down and sideways, I guess, by all the major networks about some of the stuff that Comey says. Uh, the reaction from the White House is, uh, well, I guess what you would expect. Uh, the book is called A Higher Loyalty, Truth, Lies, and Leadership. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, said that the book contains the blatant lies of a self-admitted leaker and belongs in the bargain bin of the fiction section. It also created a a Twitter storm uh, from President Trump, uh, reacting to some of the comments and some of the excerpts from the book that have come out. But Comey himself retaliated. A person who sees moral equivalence in Charlottesville, who talks about and treats women like they're pieces of meat, who lies constantly about matters big and small and insists the American people believe it, that person's not fit to be president of the United States. 
Uh, James Comey, part of his interview with George Stephanopoulos and uh, uh, a number of other interviews that he's doing. I believe he's going to be on MSNBC tonight uh, talking about the book and, of course, the uh, the furor that it has caused. Joining us to talk about this whole situation is Robert Bothwell, professor of the Department of uh, Canadian History at the Monk School of Global Affairs and professor in the Department of International Relations at the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Professor, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. A pleasure. Uh, let's talk about the book itself, maybe. I want to get into some of the back and forth between uh, the President and uh, Mr. Comey on this as well. Uh, as some people were, uh, commented rather tongue-in-cheek that if you wanted to have a bestseller, write about Donald Trump because uh, he's going to sell the book for you. Uh, but I'm getting the sense, really, Robert, that there's a, almost a mixed reaction to Comey's book and some of the, uh, the assertions in it. Well, that's right, uh, because Comey's a controversial character. Um, I mean, the Democrats are very uh, conflicted because they think that Comey lost the presidential election for them by reason of his interventions in the uh, election campaign in October uh, 2016. Um, so, you know, if you're looking at a Democratic reviewer or a Democratic appraisal, uh, the, these guys, on, on, they really don't like Comey, but they're obliged to support him. So it, uh, it really uh, whipsaws them back and forth. It's interesting. I, I did see one of those interviews uh, with, uh, I guess it was somebody who actually worked on Hillary Clinton's campaign, and, and the essence of, of his comments was, look, he's no friend of ours. Uh, you know, we're, we're glad this is out, and it's kind of shining the light on what they think are some uh, very valuable, uh, you know, I, I guess, interpretations of what went on at that time. But they still point to that uh, that memo from Comey just a few days before the election that said he was reopening the investigation, and there are still many Democrats, as you mentioned, Robert, who feel that that cost Hillary Clinton that election. Well, that's true. <laughs> but I must say my personal reaction is these guys should just get over it. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, that happened two years ago. It's over. It's done. Um, they're, I mean, they're simply um, muting the effect of Comey um, in the issue of, of some strange refighting of, of history. Uh, it's pointless. Well, there's another element to this, too, and, and I, I'm not going to diminish the impact that that memo from Comey may have had. But I think it would be rather naive, wouldn't it, Robert, to suggest that that was the only cause that, that, that cost Hillary that election? There were a lot of other things going on there. Well, sure. And, and of course, that's the other problem. I mean, thank God we haven't had a comment from Hillary herself, uh, which, which I think would uh, be totally counterproductive. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, there's her personality. Uh, there's uh, the very clear symbolism of the Democratic campaign. Um, you know, she offended as many people as she attracted. So I, I think that the Comey issue is, um, well, it's one, it's one of those things where, you know, we can second guess till the cows come home. But uh, you're right. I mean, if she hadn't been a weak candidate, uh, this wouldn't have mattered at all. It's interesting. Uh, Comey's uh, explanation, and I use the term loosely, about, about the Clinton email uh, it was rather bizarre, I thought, Robert, in the interview with Stephanopoulos. He essentially said, look, and I thought she was probably going to win, so I had to release this just so it didn't look like I was favoring her. Uh, and that, that's rather twisted logic. Well, it's unconsciously humorous. Uh, I, I mean, you know, you, you, really, uh, you, you really begin to think that you're dealing with somebody who's not villainous, uh, but just incredibly naive. Um, I mean, you know, he... he obviously thought that he was pursuing some kind of straight moral path and maybe he was in his own terms uh, but the but the effect is is really to paint himself as an opportunist which is how he's being characterized by an awful lot of the Trump supporters. Uh, I mentioned uh, Ms. Huckabee's comments, uh, but others, of course, uh, leading uh, Republicans, have done their best over the last uh, three or four days to try to discredit Comey's character. I guess that actually predates that, doesn't it, Robert? I mean, go all the way back, I guess, to his congressional hearings uh, late last year. Well, yeah, and I, uh, that's where I really lose touch with the critics of, uh, of Comey. I mean, I'm, I'm actually prepared to think of him as a moral being. His record uh, back during the George W. Bush administration was stellar. Um, I mean, this is somebody who was known to stand up for principle. And I'm inclined to think that, you know, however strange his behavior was in 2016, um, I, I don't disbelieve him when he says that he was trying to follow a, a principled or moral path. 
Um, so, and, you know, and who are these Republicans to criticize him? Uh, I mean, really, uh, these guys have put up with, uh, with a president who, uh, you know, just to put it kindly, is bizarre, um, whose uh, behavior has certainly lowered the tone of the American presidency, and uh, who has diminished the standing of the United States in the eyes of the world, and who may possibly cause a constitutional crisis within a couple of weeks. Um, you know, and, th- and these guys uh, are twisting in the wind, uh, supporting, or at any rate avoiding attacking, uh, Trump. So, uh, you know, if, if we have problems with Comey's uh, uh, role, uh, these guys just have it in spades. But your point's well taken, though. When you, when you look at Comey's uh, record, uh, it, it was brilliant, of course, uh, with his work in justice and his work with the FBI. Uh, but he would not be the first civil servant, I suppose, Robert, that gets caught up in the political maelstrom. I mean, they, those types of people that are, are dedicated to, to service, etc., uh, don't usually do politics this well. And Comey's been sucked into that, whether he likes it or not. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, a bureaucrat is not your your obvious uh, um uh, political standard bearer. I mean, you know, just by definition, uh, these are people who serve, and they tend to think, and uh, you know, it's true here in Canada too. Uh, they tend to think of themselves as being above politics. And here is Comey, who has served under Republican and Democratic administrations. I suppose his background is as a Republican, but it's an old-fashioned kind of Republican. Uh, you know, the kind that really puts public service first. And people like Comey, um, again, here in Canada, too, um, are not in it for the money. Uh, You know, um, unlike just about everybody in Trump's administration, or unlike somebody like Paul Ryan, who'll cash in um, as soon as he leaves politics. Uh, So somebody like Comey, yeah, I mean, I've got a, uh, I, I must say, I've got a lingering respect for the type you know, let's let's abstract Comey from it for the moment. Um, but for the type, I mean, that's what every government depends on to keep the damn thing running. And it's precisely that kind of thing that uh, Trump has been disrupting. Well, and, and let's put this in context as well. I mean, Trump thought James Comey was, was God's gift to justice until all of a sudden he turned on him and started leaning towards this investigation. But when he released that email just prior to the election... Uh, Trump embraced this guy, well, not physically necessarily, but at least, uh, you know, emotionally, and just said, this guy's great, I want this guy, he wants him to be part of the team, uh, and, and was ready to accept him as part of the Trump team until such time as they opened the investigation into the Russian involvement. Well, um, I mean, the investigation of the Russian involvement actually took started long before Trump was aware of it. Yeah. I mean, it started in the summer of 2016. Uh, so that was ongoing uh, by October. Uh, Trump didn't know about it. But, the, you know, the other thing about it is that Trump's emotions um, are, are about as uh, as deep as the waves on Lake Erie. Uh, I mean, you know, the, you, can't, you can't rely on Trump's uh, holding a, a particular point of view for more than 24 hours. So, you know, for Trump to embrace him in October uh, 2016, well, you know, the the uh, validity of that currency could be measured in uh, minutes, if not hours. So, uh, yeah, I mean, sure, Trump embraced him. And, of course, uh, later he does physically embrace him in January 2017. Mm-hmm. Everybody's seen the, uh, the footage of <laughs> Comey looking absolutely appalled as uh, as Trump puts his, his arms around him. So, uh, yeah, and of course we know that uh, that lasted only long enough uh, for uh, Comey to say no to Trump, and then, of course, at that point he became uh, a villain. There's almost a symbolism to the title here, isn't there, Robert? I mean, higher loyalty. Uh, truth lies in leadership. It seems to to allude to that moment that uh, that uh, Comey talked about in his congressional testimony about when Trump basically asked him to be loyal to him as opposed to just the loyalty he took to the Constitution uh, and for and for law and order. And and uh, if I remember correctly, during the days of those congressional hearings, uh, Comey was almost taken aback by that 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 the president would be as audacious enough to to suggest something like that. And and that seemed to be almost the beginning of the end in whatever relationship they had. 
Well, there is a kind of naivete in that, too. Uh, I mean, Comey comes from New York. Uh, he's got a very good idea of Trump's reputation. Uh, that was no secret for anybody. Uh, I mean, Trump was the guy who was caricatured in Doonesbury's cartoons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, to be surprised when he actually turns out to be the same as his reputation, or when he, you know, to be surprised that being uh, or becoming president hasn't suddenly ennobled his character. Uh, I mean, you know, for Comey, uh, that should simply have been confirmation, not revelation. What about the analogy of the mob boss that uh, that he talked about at length in the interview with Stephanopoulos? Uh, the old idea about defining uh, the character that you're trying to talk about in the book. And uh, the analogy, obviously, I think was very apt because Comey obviously did an awful lot of investigation in his early days in law enforcement, uh, actually, you know, checking out mob bosses and doing those investigations. So it's something of which he can speak of with a great deal of authority. But to actually draw that analogy between uh, a New York mob boss and Donald Trump, I, I thought was uh, something that really painted a picture for people. Well, I think it's unfair to mob bosses, actually. Um, I mean, it, se- it seems to me that mobs are, are based on a kind of feudal system. You know, there's a kind of reciprocal responsibility. Uh, you give the boss your fealty, you give him your obedience, and in return, he'll protect you. And there's no indication uh, that that's true of Trump. Um, I mean, I, I think for Trump... Uh, he hasn't got the character to be a mob boss because he doesn't accept, really, that he has any responsibility towards other people. He will discard anybody. Um, I mean, he hasn't yet had the chance to discard his family, but I, you know, he has discarded a previous wife, and of course we know about his marital relations. So, uh, I mean, here's, here's a guy without faith. Uh, and, and really... Um, I mean, I, I suspect that the subordinates of a mob boss uh, in New York or Brooklyn uh, would have disposed of Trump uh, long ago, um, you know, simply as an unsatisfactory capo, uh, whereas the Republicans in Congress don't have the guts of the gangsters. What's this book going to do? I mean, it's going to come out to the public this week, and, and, and obviously we're going to get our hands on it, and I'm sure it's it's going to be a bestseller. Uh, simply because of of the the stuff that's been talked about already here, but is it going to have an impact, or is this really just preaching to the choir? Them that love Trump are going to continue to love him. Those that hate him are going to just use this book to say, "See, we were right." Uh, well, I mean that's certainly a plausible argument. Um, I'd like to think not, but uh, yeah, I mean you've got a situation in which the American public is divided, roughly sixty forty. Uh, but the 60 isn't really able to uh, put its convictions in, into action. Um, and there doesn't seem to be much uh, much variation. I mean, Trump's numbers in terms of public opinion polls, public approval, um, have been pretty constant. They've been within about a 5% range. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we've had an awful lot about Trump. Um, and you don't even have to um, listen to the critics or read the critics or just how to follow his tweets. Um, you know, just e- you easily get the sense uh, that this is someone whose temperament is completely volatile. Uh, you understand easily that his daily briefing comes from Fox News, uh, that he's not only ignorant uh, as president, but he determinedly remains ignorant. So it's, um, you know... Uh, it's right out there. You could just do it in terms of uh, of Trump uh, or Trump's uh, statements, and then you could add in Sarah Huckabee Saunders, uh, who's who really uh, is uh, is just beyond belief. Um, so, I mean, how can anybody quote uh, Huckabee Saunders in the service of truth? The uh Pivotal session here has to be the the midterm elections, which are coming up in in just a few months, uh, and and that seems to be the concern for an awful lot of people, both Democrats and Republicans. Uh, there's a, a feeling among a number of people that I've heard over the last couple of days and read, Robert, that uh, that no matter what Mueller does, no matter what Comey did while he was FBI director, we know what Mueller is doing in the current investigation. Uh, they're going to hit a brick wall w- when it comes to Congress, and they're not going to move forward on anything, no matter what Mueller brings forward, unless there is a change in the power structure a- at the Congress uh, in these midterm elections. Is is that a fair assessment? Yes, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, I, I can 
except that there might be some action that Trump might take that would uh, uh, even overturn the Republicans in Congress. But we haven't seen it, so I think that's right. They're in a uh, they're in a, st- a state of stasis. Uh, but there is there is one other possibility. Um, well, there are several theoretically, uh, but Mueller could come up with an indictment of Trump, um, and I think that's possible. Um, and this is not much talked about because it's never been tried in the 250 years of the American Republic. Um, is the president above the law? And if the president is not above the law, then the president can be indicted and can be brought into court. This isn't impeachment. This is indictment. Um, now, I mean, that sends American constitutionalists into, into connections. Uh, but either you accept uh, that Trump, like any other citizen or inhabitant of the United States, is subject to the laws, or you have uh, Trump as a monarch, uh, who is above the law is not just any market, a monarch. I mean, not like Queen Elizabeth, but, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, one of her ancestors, Henry VIII, maybe. Uh, so, you know, I mean, that that is one form uh, that the crisis can take. But isn't that um, that's akin to, maybe to the, the famous quote that Richard Nixon made during his interviews with David Frost, uh, where he talked about Watergate and simply said, if the president does it, it's it's okay, it's legal. It's not against the law. That seems to be the mindset Trump is taking. Well, that's right. And, uh, you know, to be fair to Trump and fair to Nixon, at least, you know, God knows Nixon had a brain. Um, I mean, Trump will say anything uh, that serves his immediate purpose. So I wouldn't take his views particularly seriously, except, you know, opportunistically. Um, but, there, you know, there is a serious question here, and um, Americans are going to have to come to terms with it, I suspect. Um, I mean, it is quite possible uh, that Trump can be indicted for um, obstruction of justice. And it's conceivable, of course, that there's a whole bunch of other crimes back there having to do with money laundering and so on, which may have occurred even before he became president. So, um, I mean, this is the first American president of whom it can be said uh, to be possible. You know, it's, it's like Comey in the interview last night uh, saying, um, well, I never thought that I would sit here and accept the possibility that the president of the United States sat, sat by while a bunch of prostitutes peed on a bed. Um, you know, I, it is conceivable uh, that something like that might happen. And... You know, given that Mueller is sort of under the gun and everybody is worrying or wondering about when he's going to be terminated, one of the weapons in his uh, arsenal is this possibility. I don't know what would happen if he took that up to the deputy attorney general. Well, we gotta, uh, we got to break it off at that point. We'll leave that as a rhetorical question at this point, Robert. Okay. These are strange times indeed that we're living in. Thank you so much for shedding some light on it today. Greatly appreciate it. Great pleasure. Thank you so much. Robert Bothwell, professor at the Mug School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.